I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing key personnel trends within the PLA in the run-up to and after the 20th Party Congress. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has heavily prioritized China's military modernization, which he views as required for achieving the China dream of national rejuvenation. Under Xi, China embarked on sweeping reforms of the PLA, with a significant focus on promoting jointness. This has included efforts to shift from an outdated army-centric force to a military capable of fighting and winning wars across domains in high-technology environments. But military modernization isn't just about updating hardware like ships, aircraft, and missiles. It's also about improving military software, especially ensuring the readiness and capabilities of personnel. So how has the PLA's personnel changed under Xi? Are there emerging trends underway among high-ranking PLA officers? How might the PLA leadership change at the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress, set to take place in mid-October? And how might PLA modernization progress after the Party Congress? To explore these big questions, we're joined by Dr. Joel Wasnow, a senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs within the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the U.S. National Defense University and an adjunct professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. His research areas include Chinese foreign and security policy, Chinese military affairs, U.S.-China relations, and strategic developments in East Asia. His recently published report titled Gray Dragons Assessing China's Senior Military Leadership analyzes more than 300 biographies of senior Chinese military officers from 2015 and 2021 and assesses key patterns and trajectories of changes within the PLA. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joel. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for the opportunity to come in to talk to uh, China Power Project about this important topic. So the topic we're looking at today is how do we understand the PLA leadership? What should we be looking at and what should we focus on, particularly as we look forward to the 20th Party Congress? So if you don't mind, maybe let's start with the basics. When we look at the PLA leadership, what should we be focusing on? Are we mainly talking about the Central Military Commission? Yeah, I think the Central Military Commission is really the right place to start. So CMC has been around ever since the PLA has been around, so almost 100 years now. At present, what we have are six uniformed officers and Xi Jinping, who is the Central Military Commission chairman. So this is really the PLA's high command or their their top brass. And what they do, of course, is they make the strategic decisions. They update the military strategy. They make the key acquisition decisions. They make major operational decisions and so on. And so getting a sense of the personalities at that level, I think, is very important. I think it's also important, though, to look maybe one or two layers below that to better understand uh, other senior officers in key or sensitive positions in the PLA. Uh, So you might think, for example, the five theater commanders, or you might think the service chiefs, or you might think other important players within a central military commission of bureaucracy who themselves uh, have important portfolios over operations or administration, acquisition, and so on. And also who are really the the pool, the candidate pool for people who will be promoted to the CMC. Uh, And so in the monograph, Gray Dragons, I looked at about 150 officers in 20. 
21. Um, and so this is really the sort of overall leading brass of the PLA. So who are these people? And below this level, I think it's also important to have a sense, maybe not so much of the personalities, but for the types of experience of uh, just the officer corps in general of the PLA. So down below the general officers to the field grade and the junior officers. So who are these types of people? What kind of training are they getting? Uh, the PLA has been strengthening and updating its training regimens, its military educational programs. What kind of assignments do they have in their careers? And that will give you more of a sense, I think, of sort of generational change in the PLA and who might not be in charge today, but who could be in charge 10 or 20 years from now. And so I think we can't really ignore those people. Um, and finally, those people, although they're not part of the high command, if there were ever a war or a conflict, they would still be very important at the tactical and operational levels. So I think we cannot ignore them, but it's much harder, of course, because you have so many of them to look at them individually. Thank you, Joel. So as we look at the folks that get to the very top of the PLA, is there a set path for a promotion onto the Central Military Commission? So in one of your reports, you noted that China hasn't implemented the rules similar to the U.S. Goldwater-Nichols Act, which demands joint service requirement for its officers. How would you characterize the path towards promotion in the PL, and particularly at the very high levels? So it might be useful here just to draw a bit of a comparison with the senior U.S. military leadership. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the geographic combatant commanders, people at this level of our system uh, who are four stars. Um, and there's really a very significant difference, I think, in the background and the experience uh, between the PLA and the U.S. In the U.S. system, our officers tend to have had ample opportunity to understand and even to lead troops outside of their own home service. Uh, and so I think this makes them better joint commanders um, in peacetime and in wartime. And I should point out, too, that most of them have had quite a few of rotational assignments, uh, sometimes outside of their own sort of functional specialty, but certainly outside of their geographic sort of home base. And often they have uh, you know, significant overseas experience, and many of them have obviously had combat deployments as well. But where we look at the PLA, the distinction is pretty stark. Uh, most of them have done a good job, I think, within their kind of narrow silos their narrow career specialties. So for instance, a very good PLA army officer could make it up uh, to the top really without ever having led Air Force or Navy uh, troops or things like this. Uh, they also don't need to rotate around the country very much. Uh, so for most of their careers, they're sort of in one geographic region and they don't start to rotate until they're really a general officer. Almost no international deployments except maybe on a very, very temporary basis. So they're very good in terms of what they do, but they, I think, would have trouble leading sort of a PLA joint force, um, especially in a higher end contingency in the future. So in this way, I would say the diversity and the breadth of experience that the U.S. system produces contrasts favorably uh, with the PLA. And in terms of, I guess, the general promotion as well as promotion to the highest levels, do you see any requirement of to get promoted to the CMC in particular? Do you have to at least have you know, been a theater commander or been a service commander, or are those requirements not set in stone, more flexible depending on the leader? Well, to get to the CMC level, it's pretty common to have either have been a military region or now a theater commander or to have been a service chief. And in fact, the service chiefs were on the Central Military Commission until 2017 when they were removed. So the question is, there aren't that many billets right below the CMC level. And so it's fairly predictable that you would have been in one of these sort of stepping stones. But I think more to the point, there really isn't a formal requirement to have ever really 
led joint forces. And through their careers, uh, they tend to stay within one specific service or even branch and not really branch out to other services. And so, again, really the expertise they bring is to know a whole lot about, if you're an Army officer, land combat. And that's really what they bring. They bring depth uh, of expertise. Um, They don't really bring that kind of career broadening sort of experience that we would have in our system. And can I ask, you mentioned that uh, service chiefs used to be on the Central Military Commission. They were removed in 2017. Do you know why that was the case, aside from general shrinking of the Central Military Commission? Well, it's not totally clear what was in Xi Jinping's head when he uh, approved this. Um, but basically, they went from uh, 10 or 11 CMC members to six now. They took off the service chiefs. They added a service chief for the army, and they didn't have one before. And so you can kind of think, well, the services are now now on this kind of same bureaucratic plane, and they're all competing for resources, but they're not the ones that are making the resource decisions. And so maybe this is a bid for impartiality by a high command that is not itself vested in service interests. Uh, The other interesting part of the uh, CMC turnover in 2017, I think, was adding this guy, Zhang Shengmin, who is the director of the Discipline Inspection Commission. And so even though you've taken off the service chief, you've added basically the anti-corruption czar for the PLA. And what that did, I think, is to put the PLA on notice and to say, look, we we are taking this very seriously. Um, This is really our priority is a political work, keeping everyone honest, keeping everyone in line. And so now we have six uniformed officers and three of them are professional political commissars who don't even do or think about operations too much. Um, They are about internal control. Um, And so that gives you a sense, I think, of what Xi Jinping's real priorities are. He didn't create a war council. So, you know, let's say a bunch of Eastern theater commander types or Nanjing military. He didn't do that. He put in a bunch of political commissars who can say, we need to get to the bottom of what's going on inside the PLA and, and get these guys honest and to get on a better footing in terms of internal management. And so that seemed to be the priority for him uh, at that juncture. Let's move forward a little bit from 2017 to now, particularly as we look forward to the next couple of months uh, to the 20th Party Congress. What do you expect to see in terms of changes to the PLA at the next Party Congress? Are there any positions that you're watching out for? Do you expect major turnover in the PLA? I mean, I would say in general, the party congresses will mainly be important in terms of leadership turnover. So we're going to have some new members of the CMC. For about the last 20 years or so, they have uh, followed the party's retirement norms pretty closely uh, in the CMC. So once you get to age 68, when the party congress comes around, you are expected to uh, retire. Uh, And so at this point, four out of the six uniform members of the CMC are 68 or older, I think is the expectation that those four will retire uh, and that two Two will remain. The two who are expected to remain, I should add here, are both political commissars. Uh, one is Zhang Shengmin, who I just uh, talked about a little bit, and the other is Miao Hua, who is the political work department director. So he has a lot of power over officer assignments and so on. But no one with an operational background is staying. Uh, so I think what we expect is that uh, Xi Jinping will have to put in some more operational people up to the CMC level. So that could be a theater commander. It could be a service commander. Both of the CMC vice chairmen, so currently there are two, both of them are expected to leave. And typically the way they do it is one of the vice chairmen has an operational background and the other has a political background. Uh, so one of the current CMC members uh, could be elevated uh, to take the political portfolio, 
But Xi Jinping is most likely going to have to pick someone who isn't even on the CMC to become a new CMC vice chairman, or in other words, his key lieutenant for operations. It's kind of questionable who that could be right now. Xi Jinping himself will stay. Uh, so this is an important point because he's sort of the honcho here. So this isn't like previous party congresses where the general secretary of the party has been replaced and then you have a different party army dynamic. Uh, so there's consistency in that. Now, also in terms of sort of PLA modernization, um, I don't consider this to be a pivotal moment for the PLA. They are right in the middle of the 14th five-year plan, which is 2021 to 2025. So they already have an agenda, uh, a sense of where they need to be uh, going. Um, if there were big changes to the modernization plans of the PLA, uh, it wouldn't happen at a party congress where you have a couple thousand civilians purporting to make decisions on military matters. And, you know, very few of the Congress delegates, you know, Know, these civilians have any military background. Uh, so this isn't where you would make those decisions. You would make those decisions in a CMC meeting itself, and the Congress would sort of rubber stamp approve it. So I don't see this as being a pivotal moment in terms of where the PLA is headed in terms of its strategy or its modernization of programs. But again, we will see a pretty high level of turnover, I think. But there could be surprises. In terms of the folks who are currently on the CMC, you mentioned two are likely to stay and the remaining, if you're considering 60 as the cutoff, are likely to go. What do you think about the Joint Staff Department leader, Li Zuotong? Because folks have said he has more operational combat experience than his, other, than his peers, and I've heard rumors that he might stay. Well, Li Zuocheng, so he, his job right now is basically the, the senior operational person on the CMC. So he's the director of the Joint Staff Department. Yeah, by age, he should retire. Um, he, is, he is 68 or older. He should be retiring. He has a war record. He was uh, a commander uh, during the 1979 Sino-Vietnam War. Also, CMC Vice Chairman Zhang Yoshia, who is a childhood friend of Xi Jinping, also was in the 1979 uh, conflict. You know, so there are people who, you know, if she really had his druthers, would maybe choose to keep on uh, the CMC. And maybe he will. Uh, we don't know for sure that he won't. Um, and in fact, the retirement norms only go back about 20 or so years. We can think back to 1992 when Liu Huaqing, he was the kind of father of the Chinese Navy. But at that party Congress, he was 76 years old and he was reappointed to the CMC. Um, and he was also a member of the Politburo Standing Committee. So it's not as if this would be completely unprecedented. It's just that in the last 20 years or so, under Deng Xiaoping's successors, there has been this sort of informal norm. Uh, so Xi Jinping could break the norm. I think the expectation is that he didn't do this in 2017. And so he's probably not so likely to do it in 2022. And also, you want to make room for fresh blood to get up uh, uh, into the ranks and, and offer new perspectives. Um, so I think that's where the betting is. But again, there's no ironclad rule that says he can't do this. In terms of fresh blood, who do you think of the uh, 20s or so positions that you mentioned that have the potential to rise up to the CMC? Who have you heard that have the most potential of those who are not on the CMC right now? So I should say we're, you know, at the time of this recording, we're three weeks away from the party Congress and all will become very clear soon. There are, you know, sort of leading candidates and maybe some dark horses as well. You know, so there's a lot of attention, of course, on the Eastern Theater commander, Lin Xiangyang, who, based on the fact that he's been responsible for China's response to the latest uh, dust up in the Taiwan Strait and seemed to have handled it without too many incidents, uh, maybe that gives him a little bit of a leg up. Um, there's another uh, theater command, great officer, Gao. 
Gao Jin, who has had a series of important appointments. He was the commander of the Strategic Support Force. He was the uh, director of the Academy of Military Science, etc. But someone like that who really gets kind of jointness and gets innovation. So there are people like this that we talk about. But again, you know, we could be surprised. There could be someone who is, you know, sort of not on anyone's radar, but for this or that reason uh, makes the cut. But again, in three weeks or so, we will all will be known to us. So in terms of, I know we can't really predict who will be there, but what are the major factors that, I guess, she or the current Chinese PLA leadership looks for in terms of selecting folks to be at the top? So you mentioned a combination of the political commerce experience, but also operational experience. Are there other factors that they look for? How important is actual operational experience leading troops? The operational experiences is one of the more important issues. Um, first of all, you know, people talk about kind of political loyalty, loyalty to Xi and all that. But at this point, you know, the, the potential candidates for these positions have already been vetted and re-vetted. And anyone who is sort of aligned with one of Xi's political opponents is already long gone from the PLA. Everyone, you know, here at this level has a sterling reputation for uh, political compliance. They're all, you know, profess to be fully on board with Xi's agenda. So I don't think this is really a discriminator. I think it's really who has excelled in their jobs, who has done a good job, who has avoided scandals, who has avoided embarrassing uh, situations and so on, who has pushed through important reforms without kind of bad results. Uh, so they all have files. And I, I believe that Xi Jinping will personally uh, read the files and make the final decision about this. So the issue about personal connections with Xi is kind of interesting. I think, you know, looking at the data about, you know, kind of who makes it up through the Ranks. Some analysts say, well, you know, there are people who overlapped with, with Xi earlier in his career. What I found is that there's actually a relatively even distribution of people coming from different parts of the country who make it up to positions like theater commander or service commander and ultimately to the CMC. What I kind of infer from that is that Xi Jinping doesn't necessarily need to personally know some of these people or go way back, but I think he is familiar with them by reputation. I think he will read the files, uh, and I think he looks broadly. I, I, I believe he casts a fairly wide net to look for the kinds of talent and expertise that he will need to give him military advice um, on the CMC. In terms of the composition of the Central Military Commission, could you talk a bit about how you've seen the composition evolve? Are we expected to see in the 20-party Congress relative equal representation across the services and background from the different theater commands? Or will we ever see a female PLA leader on the Central Military Commission, at least the 20-party Congress or next? What are your thoughts? Right. Well, so first of all, the PLA does not do diversity. Okay. Uh, so there are no female senior generals in the PLA. There have been a couple who have been sort of lower level, you know, major generals in the military academies and that kind of thing. But in terms of operational or senior political commissars, there aren't any women to choose from. Um, so that's, I think, we're on fairly safe ground. With one exception, of course, which is Xi Jinping's wife, Madame Peng Liyuan, who is a major general in the arts and dance uh, troupe. But uh, whether or not she's elected to the CMC, I think that would be a very bold decision uh, for Xi. I'm joking, of course, Bonnie. So the service chiefs, you know, we kind of talked through that. In 2004, the service chiefs were added to the CMC. So that gave you what we might call representational jointness. So you have the appearance of jointness because you have people from each of the services sitting on the CMC. The service chiefs were removed, as I said earlier, in 2017. Xi Jinping did, I think, make a little bit of an effort to have all of these services actually nominally represented on the CMC that was elected in 2017. 
but it's a little bit of a sham, frankly, because two of them are not actually from the service they purport to be. Okay, so Miao Hua, he wears a Navy uniform, but he's an army officer who's a political commissar whose last position just happened to be in the Navy. And then Zhang Xiaomin wears a Rocket Force uniform, but he's also an army officer who just transitioned into a PC role in the Rocket Force. So it looks very joint. It's actually four out of the six are army officers, two are not. Um, there is no operational Navy person in the CMC right now. And so I think that is something that could be a consideration whether or not you have expertise from outside the ground forces, especially because China's military strategy is more kind of leaning into the aerospace, the maritime domain, you know, the missile forces and all that. And so I think it would be a big shock if you had um, all army officers, but still uh, four out of the six at present, to me, it shows that they have work to do in terms of providing real opportunities for non-army officers to get up to that level. In terms of non-Army officers, are you paying attention to any particular Air Force or Navy officers that have a lot of potential to be promoted this round, whether on the CMC or to a tier right below the CMC? Any that you see whose path is being elevated in a very rapid pace? I think there are, for instance, in the Air Force, the current Air Force commander is Chang Dingqiu. He's kind of a rising star. He's a little bit younger than the average uh, for that level. And he actually has held some joint positions. Uh, so he was a, a theater command deputy commander with a portfolio outside of the Air Force. The Navy commander, Dong Jun, also um, has had some joint experience in one of the theater commands. And this kind of gives them a little bit more credibility um, in terms of being on the CMC that, you know, you are there to make decisions for the entire PLA, not to lobby for a service interest. But I think it's especially important for those services because they don't really have a bureaucratic leg up. The PLA historically has this sort of big army mentality. It's sort of a given if you're an army officer that, you know, hey, you're one of the club. But if you're from the Navy or the Air Force, not to mention the Rocket Force, you're sort of a peripheral person uh, and you need to be taken seriously somehow. And so I do think there are a couple uh, potential candidates who are service commanders. One of the theater commanders in the Northern Theater right now is also an Air Force officer, so we'll see about him. So anyway, uh, there are some candidates, um, but again, you know, if Xi Jinping keeps the CMC at six, he needs four. He might be able to choose one or two of them. But my guess is that he'll continue to rely most heavily on army officers. You said that if she keeps the current two who are on the CMC who haven't reached retirement age, there's four that need to replace and he will choose one of them. Uh, could you just unpack that a little bit, as in the other three will be chosen by the military, the PLA itself, or? No, Xi Jinping will choose all, all four. Um, that, that's what I'm getting at. What I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that maybe one or two could be from outside the army, but I don't think that all four of them will be Navy or Air Force types. Okay, great. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify that. So let me move on to looking at what does this new composition of the CMC, depending on how we envision it, how might that impact uh PLA moving forward, particularly as we think about PLA modernization. So you recently wrote for the Jamestown China Brief talking about how the leadership could impact the PLA moving forward. What do you expect to see in terms of PLA modernization in the next couple of years? So like I said earlier, the PLA is now kind of midway through the 14th uh, five-year uh, plan for armed forces development. And I think that that document, that process gives us a pretty good clue about what their uh, priorities are 
are. And in a nutshell, it's really about kind of deepening and perfecting the new organizational uh, structure. So the 13th five-year plan from 2016 to 21, that was about really completely changing the way the PLA is set up. This five-year plan, I think they're trying to uh, deepen those reforms, make kind of fine-tune adjustments to certain systems. Uh, So in particular, I think they're moving out more on joint training. Uh, I think we will see a resumption of larger scale joint training exercises that had been sort of scaled back during the pandemic period. I think we'll continue to see incremental advances in rolling out um, advanced weapon systems, whether it's on the nuclear or the conventional side. And I think they're also going to continue to experiment with how they can better use civilian resources to meet military uh, requirements. Uh, And we often hear the PLA buzzword, military civil fusion. And so these are a few of the kind of buzzwords or key themes that are informing the 14th five-year plan. So if we don't see a CMC where we have more Air Force and Navy leaders, would that impact China's modernization plans moving forward? Or do you not see having them on the CMC as really impacting the progress moving forward in any way? It's an interesting question. I mean, I do think that in some way, the Air Force, the Navy, the Rocket Force, they will they will have a voice in CMC decision-making. Whether or not those services are formally represented on the CMC is one thing. But if they are making decisions that are relevant to PLA operations in the air domain or the sea domain, et cetera, then I think you can be fairly certain that Xi Jinping in his role as CMC chairman will consult with people who know about these things. And he seems to be a fairly good manager of people, and he seems to sort of cast a fairly wide net in terms of getting advice on important issues. But once again, you know, the current CMC is is kind of army dominant, um, and they have been purporting to make decisions for the entire PLA. It's a little bit hard to imagine the next CMC going even further in the sort of big army direction. I suspect if there isn't uh, an Air Force person on the next CMC, there will at least be a Navy person. So you will get some non-army operational expertise on there. But in terms of sort of the, the planning cycle where they are making decisions, there is an entire process that takes place below the level of the CMC. CMC that is then fed up uh, to the CMC. And I think that will take into consideration um, what the different services need and what they're planning to uh, do, um, you know, whether this is about operations, whether this is about, you know, redundant development and so on. All, all of that will be taken into consideration. That doesn't necessarily mean that the CMC will somehow make fully efficient decisions. Um, I mean, it's sort of a pattern in communist systems that, you know, you want to try to create as many winners as possible and you don't really like, um, you know, fully, fully kind of throwing someone out. You know, so I do think they will give a bone at least to each of the services. They're not going to say you don't matter anymore because you're not necessarily represented on the CMC. Um, I think they do tend to protect institutional equities. The plans go up from the services and they come back down from the CMC. I don't see them rolling back progress that's been made in recent years in terms of giving the Navy, the Air Force, and the Rocket Force a larger uh, share of the budget pie. And I think the Army has sort of, it's it's already eaten its cuts um, in the last uh, five-year plan. Uh, they were responsible for most of the 300K personnel that were cut out of the PLA. It's a little bit hard to see them cutting even more uh, sort of muscle out of the the PLA ground forces. Um, And so, you know, where this leaves us, the CMC will make its decisions based 
uh, in part on politics uh, and in part on what they think is the most efficient way forward. Um, and Xi Jinping will sort of be, he'll own it, right? Because he's the CMC chairman and he's made so much of the CMC, what he calls the CMC chairman responsibility system. Uh, and so if they do make some sort of big strategic mistake, it's sort of on him. But I would argue they have a, a system in place that kind of uh, evens things out and ultimately is not going to be, you know, in getting themselves in too much trouble. Another key question to explore is how does PLA leadership changes, particularly the CMC composition, how does that impact China's willingness to use force, including, as we've been focusing a lot, um, potential use of force against Taiwan? So we had talked about how most of the members on the CMC don't have that much combat experience and how it's possible that some of the new generation might have some limited experience. You had mentioned Lin Xiangyang, which is who, the commander of the Eastern Theater Command. How would his elevation to power or what we speculate could be with the potential composition of the 20-party Congress. How might that impact the PLA moving forward, particularly when it comes to use of force? Well, there could be a limited impact, I think, in terms of, you know, the people who are there having those conversations, the backgrounds that they have sort of affects whether or not they're asking the right questions, whether or not they're getting to the bottom of it and, you know, their sort of confidence level and how much they think they know about a certain topic. So if they do choose a former Eastern Theater commander, that's someone who is intimately familiar with the details of that particular contingency. And if that person is, you know, sort of in the military high command, then they kind of have, I think, probably a better sense of what the limitations, what the constraints are, what the new capabilities coming online will be and so on. And so they may be in a better position to provide advice to Xi. That being said, you know, I don't think that the the changeover in the CMC is going to have a big impact on whether or not they will use force or go to war and that kind of thing. You know, first we have to keep in mind that Xi Jinping is staying and he has his own perspectives on these things. And he has, you know, sort of his agenda for Taiwan, etc. And we're going to learn more about what that is and whether he has made any adjustments to his own thinking in the 20th Party Congress work report section on uh, Taiwan. Um, so that's really a Xi Jinping level issue, not a professional military advice issue. If they do use force, in my judgment, this would be based on kind of the prevailing political, economic and military conditions. And so, you know, as I said, the leadership Reshuffle could have an impact in terms of how the PLA is assessing its own uh, readiness and its capabilities and those of its adversaries. And so that could have at least a marginal impact on one category of the kind of risk reward calculus. But the key thing even in that that area would be kind of the actual shift in the military balance. And to some degree, this is outside of the CMC's control. And so, for instance, if Taiwan does really dramatic things to um, improve its readiness and its uh, you know sort of defense reforms in the next few years, you know, they're going to do that and China is going to observe that regardless of who's on the CMC. Um, and of course, you know, this use of force decision is beyond the military um, in terms of kind of a, pr a projected economic risks and costs, the diplomatic fallout and all that. And in these areas, Xi Jinping will have judgments that come from different parts of the bureaucracy. So in other words, the military is not going to tell Xi Jinping, oh, geez, I think we can avoid Western sanctions because that's completely outside of their lane. And so, you know, yes, yes, on one hand, this could have a marginal impact because you could have people who get the problem more or less than the previous set of characters and their experiences will be a little bit different. Um, but in the main, I would say probably not because you're talking about Xi Jinping's personal judgment on one hand, which probably isn't going to vary too much. And second, you're talking about kind of the objective reality, which the CMC, you know, is looking at, but they're not really determining it. I guess, Jill, maybe I was thinking about the other potential, which is that Xi Jinping might seek to formulate the CMC 
based on what he thinks of potential use of force. So one hypothesis could be that if, for example, Lin Xiangyang or folks who have had significant experience in the Eastern Theater Command are rising up to the CMC, it could be an indication that she is preparing to use force. Vice versa, if we see more folks from the Western Theater Command having a position there or experience from Western Theater Command, it could also be indicating more willingness to take risks there. What are your thoughts on this potential? I would say if if it's an indicator, I would regard that as a fairly a fairly weak indicator because you know truly if he is if he needs to use force either because he is boxed into it by something that Taiwan does or because he has some sort of strategic plan, he's going to be talking to the people that he needs to talk to whether or not they're actually on the Central Military Commission. And so he will be talking to whoever's currently serving as the Eastern Theater Commander. He will be getting advice from people that he's known for ages. Um, Whether or not they formally have a seat at the table, that's one thing. But just because, let's say, there isn't a former Eastern Theater Commander at that level of the hierarchy, I wouldn't say that that would give us much reassurance that he's somehow not not going to use force, uh, to put the question the other way. Um, you know, again, because he may be boxed into it by something the other side is doing, uh, or because he's confident that he has um, enough broad advice from other parts of the system that he can understand where the PLA is at without having to funnel everything through uh, six people who just happen to be sitting at the same conference table that he's sitting at. So again, this is sort of a yes, kind of, but Mainly my instinct is to say not really. Is there a potential that there may be a generational difference among PLA leaders in the sense that younger leaders might have less experience, less knowledge about the U.S., more confidence in China, more nationalistic versus older leaders? Is that something worth highlighting at all? Yeah, so I think there is going to be a generational uh, shift just in terms of uh, background. If we look at kind of the current the current senior leadership on the CMC and even the next CMC, which will really be from the same generation, you know, these are guys who were you know mostly born in the 1950s. They actually experienced and suffered during the Cultural Revolution. They saw what a weak China looks like. Um, you know, they I think tend to be a little bit more risk averse. They tend to value stability. In the 1980s, they also were in the PLA as officers when China had quite a very good relationship with America. Some of them were able to visit America and to see our own system, our own capabilities. There may be a sense of humility. It's maybe not quite the right word, um, but at least a sense of, you know, this is where China is. This is kind of the danger of going back to a to a period of, of chaos and war. Some of them were in a war in 1979. But the next generation will be people who have no memories of the Cultural Revolution, who were youngsters in the 1980s and 1990s when China was sort of ascending, and who were military officers in the 1990s and 2000s when China was rapidly modernizing and becoming much more confident. Um, And so I wonder whether or not those people might actually be less appreciative or less uh, impressed uh, by the United States, and they may actually be a bit confident or even overconfident uh, in China's capabilities, and uh, in particular, its ability to achieve their strategy to win a short, high-intensity war without it dragging on and without it having severe repercussions for China because of this sense of, of triumph and ascendancy and, and overconfidence. So that's something I think maybe in the next decade or two, it's something worth worrying about, uh, whether or not they might be as sober-minded if you will, um, as their current, currently serving seniors. 
I do want to end on one question of what is the implications of the PLA leadership change for U.S. or U.S.-China relations? It seems from what you're saying, it's, it's something that we need to watch to understand dynamics in China and how the PLA may act. But it doesn't seem to be, however, the changes we might see on the CMC or the level beyond the CMC, it doesn't seem to be the most direct factor impacting U.S.-China relations. So the main thing here, once again, is that Xi Jinping is staying on as CMC chairman, and he is really determining where the military fits in in terms of U.S.-China relations. And he has kind of carried out this balancing act in the last decade, I think. On one hand, he has wanted the U.S.-China military relationship to provide ballast or stability to the overall bilateral relationship. And he has encouraged, you know, crisis communications, talks and things like this. But on the other hand, he feels the need to send very strong and unmistakable signals in regional disputes, including it, but also beyond uh, Taiwan, which causes him to do things that undermine crisis communications with the U.S. and to do kind of reckless things. Um, so that's sort of his judgment and where he wants to go uh, politically. And I think we're going to keep uh, seeing that carry out kind of regardless of who's on uh, the CMC in terms of the uniformed officers. That being said, you know, personalities and relationships do matter matter in terms of mill-to-mill engagements and talks, whether in peacetime or in crisis. Our military is going to have to reestablish relations with whoever is promoted up to the CMC. Uh, so uh, China will be getting a new defense minister. Um, on this point in particular, the defense minister position is a state position, and that will not turn over until March when they have the next National People's Congress. So Wei Fang Hill will be off the CMC, but he'll still be the defense minister for another five months or so. And yet uh, we'll know who the kind of incoming defense minister will be because that person will be on the new CMC they appoint in October. So anyway, we'll have a little bit of time to kind of gauge the new personalities, but those relationships will have to be redone. You know, Secretary Austin has spoken several times to Wei Feng He. Now he's going to have to get to know the next guy, whoever that is. Um, so those relationships, I would argue, do matter. But still, really, to me, this is about, you know, Xi Jinping staying on and the relationship that he has with President Biden. Um, and, you know, they're going to have another opportunity here in November in Indonesia at the G20 to reconvene and to talk and to take stock of the relationship and either recommit to this whole emphasis on guardrails and crisis communications and all this kind of stuff or to say, you know, no, we don't think it's possible to do this anymore. Um, but to me, anyway, that's the key relationship. And everything else, you know, are people taking si signals from the heads of state. And so I think that's really where the action is. And there I would expect she to be the important variable, not whether he has a lieutenant that has a little bit of a different spin on things. Well, thank you very much, Joel, for this fascinating discussion on what do you expect in terms of PLA leadership and why it matters, or in some cases, may not matter as much as people think it might. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been great talking.